Amen. Uh, so we're in a new book of the Bible today, 1 John. So you can turn there if, if, you'd, if you'd like. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 um, here today. And, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to teach on, uh, I am going to teach that entire text. I, I believe I know I got caught up a few times with Philippians. Um, and so we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll stay on track this time. That's a complete lie, but um, we'll, uh, we'll see. Um, so we're, we're in the book of 1 John. And uh, uh, I'm excited about it. I've I, I got to be honest with you. I haven't entirely been excited about First uh, John in the past, which is sad as a pastor to say that because you're talking about the Bible, the Word of God. But First John has not been one of my favorite books, and part of it is because of uh, you know misunderstanding or or something along those lines. And, and part of it is because when I look at First John, sometimes it feels like it's it's legalistic, or sometimes it's hard to understand. It's hard to really uh, dig into entirely. It just kind of tells you these various purpose statements and things like that. But uh, as I've uh, begun to study it, I've I've developed a deeper love for it, and it's not as though I don't love the scripture. It's just that it's not maybe not my favorite book, but as I've gotten into studying it, one of the things that I've really seen and, and realized is that this book is for us, and really every book of the Bible is for us. It's, it's about us. It's, it's for us to learn from, but in this time, in this time period, as we, we've gone through Philippians and really uh, tried to break down exactly what is the gospel in our lives. What isn't it and what is it? And so we've, we've really gotten that down. We've really understood that. And yeah, there's been application as a result of that. But on top of that, what we want to see is we want to see how are our lives supposed to change? What should they look like? What should we be like? Now, Salem is this sleepy town and we don't get excited about much too often. And of course, there's different personality types here. But it's not like this firecracker of, of, of a place that, that is moving here or there or what have you. And so sometimes I think that that sedentary mindset, and, and one way that we'd witness that is that sometimes Salem is called Snailum. Right? I don't know if you've heard that before, Snailum, that when I was, you know, in high school and, and college age, you know, that's what we would call it. There just wasn't a lot going on here. Now, the downtown area has gotten so much better in other parts of the, the city, but there's this sense of kind of a sedentary lifestyle. We don't get excited about too much. We don't get involved in too much. We don't have riots in the streets very frequently. We don't have things like that. And so it may be difficult for us to really get excited about something and really see life change happen in us, to see God actually move on us and to change us and to actually maneuver in our hearts to cause us to be different people. Now, I, I, I say this frequently, but uh, I, I want to continue to say it, and that is that I'm not doing Christianity. I'm not doing church planting or leading a church or something like that along with the other elders. I'm not doing that just because it's something to do. I have other things that I could do, but I, this is something that I want to do, and this is what I want to be a part of, and I deeply want to be involved in Christianity, but I'm not doing it just to do it. I'm doing it so that I grow in Christ, so that I'm walking with him, so that I'm engaging with him. And, and I mean, there's times I get tired. There's times when I've been preaching for consecutive weeks where it's just like, oh, man, it's hard for me to get into the word again. Listen, I understand what it's like uh, to be somebody who's just a normal person as well. But the truth is this, is that I got into this because God called me into it, first of all. But I got into it because this is passionate for me. 
This is incredibly exciting for me. This grabs my heart and soul in ways that nothing else has. There's nothing else that can satisfy. Many of you know my story about being in building and, and construction and things like that. And I don't think building and construction is, is wrong. I don't think there, there's anything wrong with it. But at that, at that point in my life, there was a deep sense of I was driving, I was striving, I was going after something. And I was looking for this joy that was deeply embedded in the idea of building massive buildings or taking on massive projects. And it spoke to something in me that was, that was saying, like, this is what you're about. This is who you are. And there was something inside of me that was rejecting that and saying, it's still not making me happy. Even though at a very early age in life, I had come upon what it seemed to be was relative success. And so I came to a point where I said, this does not bring me ultimate joy. It does not bring me ultimate satisfaction. And I have to tell you this, that in your Christian life, and in, in who you are, and where you're going, and, and what you're about, like, if your deepest joy, if your deepest satisfaction is not found in serving the Lord Jesus, and in communion with him, then there is something that's off. And John, very pointedly, points out for us that if this is not true in your life, if this is not true of you, then there is a problem. And the, the hard truth is this. The hard truth is that you may have always believed that you were walking with Jesus. You may have always believed that you had relationship with God. You may have always believed that you've just been in it. You've been a moral person. You've been all these things. And yet it's not true that you're not in that you're really not a part of it. Now, I'm not here to shake your foundations, but John is. John is. So let's listen to John, because I, and, and let me tell you, that's why the book's uncomfortable for me. So I hope that you're uncomfortable as well with me, because I think that's the reason why he wrote it, was to make us uncomfortable. Let's read the first four verses, and I'll, I'll give you some background on this, because you're going to be fairly confused when I get done reading this. So it says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, there's a, a couple of purpose statements in there. If you, if you look back in, into uh, verse 3 so that you too may have fellowship with us. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Secondly, which I think is kind of the overarching theme of the book, and that is, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. A, a completed joy, a, a, like the fullest joy that you could possibly imagine. The joy that you're seeking after in your relationships, in your money, 
in whatever it is. He's saying this. He's saying that there is a deeper fellowship, there's a deeper joy than you could ever imagine that happens when you get this, when you understand it. Now, he has several other uh, purpose statements throughout the book. And those purpose statements, Danny Aiken uh, outlines them for us. There's, uh, there's four of them. The first one is, is we write this to make our joy complete, uh, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The second one is this, I write this to you so that you will not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, number three, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, chapter 2, verse 26. Number four, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now think about the practical implications of all these things that are being said here. The practical implications are, I want you to have real joy. I want you to be focused on not sinning. I want you to be focused on that because of what the gospel has done for you. I want that to work its way out in your life. I don't want to give that sermon right now. I could. I'm not going to. That's for somebody else. Uh, uh, the, the third one, he's, he's saying, there are people who are coming into your church, and really many people say that John is writing this to correct theological error, which is our issue as well. I'll come back to that in just a second. And then the last thing, so that you would have assurance so that you would know, so that you would know that you have relationship with God. Do you know that you have relationship with God? Do you know? You could put a stake in the ground, you could write something on a piece of paper, but there, there is something about it that is just, it's confounding on some level. John says there's a way to know, but it's not the way that you think. That's for later in the series. I'll leave you hanging with that. The biggest problem is this. There's false teachers. They're coming into the church. We see it all the time. I won't mention their names right now, but there's uh, 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 prosperity gospel, which we've talked about uh, extensively through Philippians. There's people who, who question the existence of hell there, or, 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 or the idea of eternal punishment. And they assert a universal salvation. Like everyone's in, uh, we should just live in that reality, that kind of a thing. There's all kinds of people who would distort the truth of the gospel. There's other religions. Some of my neighbors uh, are, are this way, fantastic people. I, we love hanging out with them. But there's other religions that would say this, and I'm, I'm not besmirching them, but I'm, I'm saying that this is what they truly believe, that Jesus really isn't God, that he, he, isn't, that he isn't God. He's an angelic being or something along those lines. There's many different religions that would acknowledge the existence of Jesus without acknowledging the deity of Jesus. In John's day, there was a, an error called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was working its way into the church. And what was going on is that these people were coming in and they had a different take on the scriptures. Keep in mind, every cult, almost every cult, has a different take on the New Testament scriptures. Or, and really on all the scriptures, but especially the New Testament scriptures. They have a different take on who Jesus is. Yeah, I know that it says this, but our translation says that. Yeah, I know. And what you need to do is that if, if you get into those types of situations, you should look at what the original manuscripts say. You should look at what those things have to say. Not their version of what they think, but of what the original manuscripts say. That's all that I can say about that. So there's this idea of false teaching, and it's Gnosticism, and it's coming into the church. It asserts two things, a secret knowledge that's granted to special people. 
It's asserting this idea that there is this secret knowledge that only the special people have. And then the second thing is that the body is bad, but the spirit is good. Like the body is evil, all matter is evil, and, uh, the, but, and the spirit is good. Which then lead, led to two extremes. And there was the ascetics, which believed in asceticism, which was to punish your body. These are the kind of people that like to eat kale and drink LaCroix and things like that. I don't know if, I, I, if you've ever seen this tweet, but I loved it about the, the drink LaCroix, if you're aware of it, is that the person asked, uh, I, what, my question to everybody who's drinking LaCroix right now, have you tasted any other beverages? Like, is there, I, like have you not tasted anything else? I've, like, people come over to my house, we have, you know, funk, church functions and things like that, and somebody always, like, leaves some LaCroix in my fridge or something like that, and, and I just, you know, I just want to take that with you through the back window or something like that, you know, like, like, don't leave that at my house. I can't water anything with it. I can't, you know, it has no alcohol in it or anything like that. It's like, it's just, it's, it's just, it's awful. So anyway, okay, asceticism. All right, uh, so they're going to punish their body by doing, uh, by doing things that, like, they just want to push off the body. So they, they don't do anything that they want to do. They just push things off. And then the, the second error that could come out of that is that since the body is evil and, it, and the body doesn't matter, but ultimately just the spirit matters, what they would say is that, well, I can just do whatever I want. So it's called licentiousness. So they'd be, they would just do whatever they want, whenever they want, their drink of choice would be like Red Bull, and they'd like eat as much gluten as they possibly could, or something like that. Or they would just do whatever they want whenever they feel like it. So sexual immorality was rampant in that, and they would do whatever feels good at that point. There's two, two really important extremes that are, are still around today. That there's this idea of, of, of moralism that I just need to be a moral person, but it's really absent of who Jesus is. Like Jesus and his gospel, which are really two inseparable things, are, are not really a part of what they're doing to stay morally pure. And ultimately what's happening is that they're just driving their own pride through their own ability to white-knuckle life and just stay as a good and pure person. So they're, they're, they're moral people. Or they're, they're, they're people that are, that are just moral and they're just not even a part of religion. And so they don't even believe that, that, they, that they need God because they're so moral. But deep inside of them, what they really need to know is that their pride is the biggest, the biggest hurdle between them and God if they were to ever come to him because ultimately they're saving themselves in and through that. So there's this, this moral purity idea that would be the, the ascetics or asceticism. But then there's this salvation through licentiousness and, and either it's our ultimate joy is found in doing whatever we please. And of course our culture is deeply embedded in that idea that we just do whatever we want. And if it feels good, I should do it. And if I, and if I have the, this inclination in my heart to act in a particular way, then I should obey that. And ultimately, their stomach is their God. Their God is their belly. They, they do whatever they please whenever they want. And what they don't realize is that much of the hurt and pain and all of, of everything that they abhor in our society ultimately comes from that idea of I'm doing whatever I want, uh, however I want, when I feel like doing it. 
That people are, are responding in that same way and they don't see the error in that. Or there's people who are in the church and they have received Jesus Christ as Savior or they've prayed a prayer or they have something like that and, and they, they believe that they have a relationship with God and yet they're doing whatever they want, however they want, because they believe that they have what's commonly called fire insurance. Like I know I, if the thing burns down, it's fine because I, I've got my ticket out of hell because I did pray this prayer at this point. Now, we're not talking about people, and John will go into this later, like if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. So John is fully going to acknowledge the fact that, hey, all of us sin, but the, the goal is this, is to work toward sanctification. And so what he's saying is that the people who would sin uh, on a regular basis, fully knowing that this is against God and participating in that and not growing in this, that there's a deep problem with that. There's a deep issue. I see this many times with people who are Christian people who, who say that they're walking with Jesus and yet instead of abiding by the word of God and not engaging in sexual morality prior to marriage or even during marriage, it's just a part of their life. And so prior to getting married, they're like, you know, let's shack up together. Let's sleep together prior to us getting married. And if that's you today, I, I want you to know that I'm not here to make you feel guilty, that the blood of Jesus covers that sin. But that's one of the biggest problems in our society. Why not test drive the car before uh, I actually buy it? And that is not real love. All that is is I just want to hedge my bets here. I just... I just want to make sure that this is what I want to do. I, I don't trust you enough uh, to wait. I don't trust God enough to wait on him. But it's not just that kind of stuff. It's essentially just saying, you know, I'm good right where I'm at. I'm okay with the area that I'm in right now. I don't really need to grow beyond where I am. I don't really need to get out of the things that I'm involved with. And that's a, that's a, that's a real issue. It, it doesn't matter what it is. The, the reason why we want to engage with the scripture on a regular basis is to come to a point where we're, we're, where we're convicted on a regular basis and that to the world that sounds horrible, like you wanna feel guilty all the time? No, I wanna find points in my life to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ and his joy for me. I wanna find these areas in my life, like where is my ultimate joy residing? And I'm getting into the end of the sermon now, so I better go back. Okay. So what, what he says, there, there's three things uh, that I think David Allen, a, a commentator, really points out that I think are, it just really kind of clarifies what this passage is saying. And what he, what he, what he says is this, is that yes, uh, uh, John is combating false teaching and he does so in three areas uh, uh, through eternally, historically, and experientially. So he's going to combat this false teaching through those three areas, and he's going to communicate to us what needs to happen as a result. And so what John does is he's really going to help us see and know and understand where this false teaching is getting it wrong and how it affects who we are. It's an it's a, it's a incredibly big point. What you believe about God comes out in your life. What Listen, it, whatever you believe about God comes out in your life. These two different theological errors were believing this, that either Jesus uh, wasn't God and he was just a man, or he was just a man and, uh, and he wasn't God. Or did I say that backwards? Either he was God, just God, or he was just man. That's what I meant to say. 
So he didn't have a physical body and he was just God. Or he was just a physical body and he wasn't God. That kind of a thing. So really what they're getting at is they're getting at this kind of issue that, that is just like, I'm not believing the scriptures. And so it's, and out of that comes just this misalignment with who God is. And so their lives are showing that. They're, they're displaying this idea. And so John begins to write this letter. Now, if, if I'm looking at this letter, um, one commentator suggested this, and that is that um, it, it possibly is a transcript that was written down. But of course he says, I'm writing these things to you, but who knows? I, I don't know. What makes the most sense to me is that it sounds like something John has spoken and it was written down and sent, sent to other churches. So it is a letter, but ultimately, ultimately what it looks like to me is that it begins speaking. That which was from the beginning. He comes up on stage or he comes up in front of this, this, uh, this church and he just begins to speak. And he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands. What's he talking about there? He says, the, the thing that is eternal, the thing that's always existed, the thing that's always been, and this is kind of John's mode of operation, that John wants to begin his discourses, he wants to begin his letters, he begins his gospel with this, the Gospel of John, a different book of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made uh, that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John is, is really wants to get across to us. He's in the beginning. He's eternal. What do you believe about God? How is Gnosticism, he says to the church, coming into our lives, and how is it changing what the real scriptures have to say? John says this. There's a problem in your church. It begins with understanding who Jesus actually is, that he has eternally existed. He's the uncreated one. Without him was not anything made that was made. He's with God. He has eternal attributes. And then he goes on to, so that's the eternal aspect. Then he goes on to the historical aspect. Look at what he's talking about. He's saying he is God. People who believe he was just a man. He's a good man. He's a good moral teacher. He's all those things. Hey, never mind that. You don't know what you're talking about. That's jacked up teaching. He is God. He's eternally existed. And then look what he goes into next, the historical element, which we have heard. He's saying, I am an eyewitness. Me and the other apostles, the other disciples who saw him. He said, we have heard him. I didn't just hear him. He wasn't just a phantom as some might have believed about him. But we've also seen him. We saw the guy. We saw him. Listen to how incredible this, this is. You're, you're reading an ancient manuscript 
whether it's a transcript or just a letter, it doesn't matter. This was written down, and we have proof of it. And this guy is saying, listen, I was there. I saw him. It's firsthand account information. It's an eyewitness account. He's saying, I saw him. I heard him with my own eyes, with our eyes, these are the other witnesses, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. It wasn't like he was a ghost. So you go to shake his hand and you're like, whoa, like, that was awkward. Where's your hand? No, it's, he says, I've seen him, I've touched him, and he's the eternally existent one. From eternity past, he has always existed. So then he goes a little bit further and he says, concerning the word of life. Concerning the word of life. So he gives us a little bit more information about who this person is. He's talking about Jesus. I'll just give it away right now. But he says, concerning the word of life. Now, why is Jesus called the word of life? It's because the message and the person of Jesus Christ are inseparable. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. But he's also a word that brings life. He's also a word that brings life. That's why John 1, uh, chapter 1, not 1 John, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 1, but John 1, which I just read for you, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word is like the action of God. He carries out the purposes of God. In the beginning uh, the, was the word. He existed, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Wasn't a God, was God. This is Jesus. John refers to him as the word. He refers to him as the word of life right here. It is in and through him that you get life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. Now this is an excursion right here in the middle of his commentary. And this is kind of why... You know, I mean, of course, when you're writing, they, he's not like editing a Word document. You know what? Back that up. I'm going to say something else here. No, it's just like put a dash and then just say something else or repeat what I'm saying. The Word was made manifest. Think about this. You're sitting in this ancient church. It's candlelight. I don't know. And, and he, he stops what he's saying. And he says, the word was made manifest. He, it was made to appear. Like this person who is the word of life, who was with God and was God, all things were created through him, he was made manifest. He appeared. He was there. I saw him. We have seen it. Look at what he's saying. How could you believe what these Gnostic idiots are saying? And to us, how could you believe what culture is telling you? How could you believe what you are telling you? How could you believe that just through your moral goodness, that somehow you're going to have life? How could you believe that through doing whatever you want and saying, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, how could you believe this? Look at who Jesus is. We've seen it. And I'm, I'm not just seeing it, but I'm testifying to it. I'm talking about it. If you've seen him, you're going to testify about him. Have you seen Jesus work in your life? You're going to testify about it. Do, have you experienced him? Enough of this, keeping your religion to yourself. Enough of, I'm not saying cram it down someone's throat. I'm talking about being a normal person who has the love of Jesus residing in them. If you've seen him, you want to testify about it. 
And then he says, and proclaim to you the eternal life. You're going to testify about what Jesus has done in your life, how you've seen him work in your life, how you've experienced him in everyday life. You're going to love that. If you've experienced Jesus, you're going to want to testify about it. Now, this is the experiential part. We talked about the eternal part. We talked about the historical part. We're getting into the experiential part. We're going to proclaim to you, church, that is being influenced by false teachers. That's us as well. We're going to proclaim to you the eternal life. This is where you get life. This is where you get eternality, which was with the Father. That's Jesus. He's not just a product of Mary and Joseph. He's a product of the Holy Spirit implanted in Mary. And he is from God, and he is God. And he is in the flesh. He was with the Father, and he was made manifest to us. Look at how much he's repeating this. I have seen him, I have seen him, I have seen him, I have seen him. I haven't just seen him, but I heard him. I wasn't just seeing things, I heard him. So if I'm seeing things, then I'm also, you know, hearing things. But it's more than that. It, it wasn't just a phantom. I experienced him. I experienced him. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. John is saying, you must hear about this. Why? Must you hear about this? Look at the next verse or the next section. So that you too may have fellowship with us. I think that's kind of a kind way of him saying, I'm saying this so that you can know that you're actually in the church, that you're actually a believer. I'm saying this so that you could see that you are actually a part of the faith and it's not just that it's saying it's saying this that fellowship isn't created out of doctrinal fuzziness but out of theological clarity uh, oftentimes in the life of the church we get pushback because we believe what the Bible says and all of the various genres that are in Scripture, understanding them correctly and properly, we believe what the Bible says about how God is the one who initiates salvation. We believe what the Bible says about how God is the creator and sustainer of faith. He's the one who's chosen who would believe in him. And we, yet we say, how do we know who's chosen? I don't know. We've just been told to evangelize. We've been told to create disciples. We've been told to testify, to proclaim, to bring proclamation to the city of Salem and to the world about who Jesus is. That's our job. We don't get to worry about that. What, what is our job? It is to glory in the amazing magnitude of who God is. See, fellowship isn't created through doctrinal fuzziness. It is created through theological clarity and when we have theological clarity especially on this point this is Jesus 
He's eternally existent. He has always existed. In him is life. The only way to the Father is through him. If we decide, you know what, we're not going to talk about you know, some of these things because they're just kind of divisive or whatever. Enough with that. John says, I must bring the truth to you. I must bring this clarity to you. Otherwise, we don't have fellowship. Otherwise, we don't have anything in common. Otherwise, we're not connected at the deepest level. We must be connected at the deepest level in order for there to be true and abiding fellowship. And at the deepest level, the person who believes the truth about God is the person who glories in even the most difficult things of the scriptures and says, oh, who can know the mind of the Lord? How unsearchable are his judgment, inscrutable his ways. I mean, God is amazing with the way that he has worked and how he has created salvation for me. And I, as a little peon, as his creation, as his created work, the only thing I get to say is, hallelujah, God be praised because of what he's done. I don't get to argue with it. Our fellowship comes out of the clarity that we have. But the question is this, is do we have real fellowship? Do we have real fellowship or is it what we have come to know as fellowship within the American church? Fellowship in the American church is, it could be any number of things. You could, you could make a description of it and you could say, you know, I have fellowship with people. I have some Christian friends. Okay. What that normally means is I have some people that I know that are also Christians. They don't hold me accountable. I'm not really talking about the scriptures with them. I know them. I, I know that they have gone to church before, and so therefore that's what it is. I'm not saying that's what your issue is. I'm just saying that's what most people is, and probably you too. But I'm not saying that is your issue. It's like I know some people, but I'm not really connected with them. Are you somebody who just comes to church, and you never connect with other people outside of church? Do you have a deep and abiding fellowship with other people that begins in Jesus, which I'll come to in just a second, but do you have a deep and abiding fellowship with people that are at the church? Not just this church. I mean, it could be at any Bible-believing church in this city. But do you have a fellowship with people? Or are you a bench warmer who comes and goes and you're not connected with people? Now, people blame the church. Well, they didn't say hi to me. They didn't, whatever. Be an adult and join the things that we've created for you to be a part of. There, there's hardly anything that, I mean, we're bound to catch you eventually. We're, we're, we're gonna find you eventually, and we're gonna force you to get into one of these groups. It's gonna be amazing, and then you're gonna have real fellowship. No, we have all kinds of things, not just here at the church, but connection with other people. And we do this because we want you to engage in the fellowship that is with us. We want you to believe rightly. We want you to possess the truth of Jesus Christ as described in the scriptures. And he says that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying our fellowship is is not just around a series of ideals that have to do with social justice. Now, we talk about living outward all the time, and that's because well, we want our inward life to be right with loving Jesus. 
loving Jesus, and all that that means out of the scriptures. But that must also translate into, if you love Jesus, and if that's real, then what's going to happen is other things in your life, other things are going to take place. You're going to care about the people that are in your neighborhood. You're going to love the people that are around you. Instead of responding with hate on Facebook, you're going to respond with love. Instead of having political battles every day, and I hope if you go to Outward Church that you would keep your political mind to yourself and that you would emphasize the things of Jesus. And yes, there are things that have been politicized that are the things of Jesus. We believe that immigrants should be cared for and not abused. Want to offend the, the, the right right there? Let me offend the left. We believe that the unborn are helpless babies, and we should defend them. We believe. Let's emphasize the things of Jesus. We have fellowship in the things of Jesus. We do not have fellowship in the Republican Party. We do not have fellowship in the Democratic Party. We have fellowship because of it is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, that we have a right relationship. Why? Because we have placed our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. My hope is not in the political happenings of the day. My hope is not in, in, in the wars that could be started. My, my hope is not in anything like my paycheck or my family or my home. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save me. Why? Because he's the only one who went to the cross for you. He's the only one that died for you. He's the only one who is eternal, God in the flesh, who did that for you. And when you trust in him, it changes you. Is there a change? Do you have a, is there a change in your life? Have you gone on believing I can do whatever I want? Have you gone on believing I'll save myself through my moral, my moral standing? John says, no, your hope must come out of the fellowship that you have with Jesus Christ. As a result of that fellowship, what happens is this. You have fellowship with us, not just us, but true believers in Jesus Christ. Lastly, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Where does joy come from? Joy comes only from knowing that your hope, your standing, your, your only, the only thing that you could look to for fulfillment, your joy comes out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is the experiential element, ladies and gentlemen. Do you have experience with Jesus? Is Jesus just a historical figure for you? Is he a moral figure for you? Did you come to church this morning because you're just trying to get a few things straight? Listen, I cannot help you. I cannot. I mean, there's some wisdom that might help. Stop breaking the law. You know, stay true to your wife. Those, those are helpful, 
But ultimately, what the problem is, 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 is not just like, well, stop breaking the law. It's ultimately that your joy is rooted ultimately in your happiness. Your joy, which can never be reached on your own. Your joy is limited. Your joy is not eternal. Your joy can never fulfill you. It can never satisfy you. There's never enough. Your joy ultimately has to come from faith in Jesus Christ. So I could give you some wisdom, but it's not ultimate wisdom. The ultimate wisdom comes from the ultimate joy, which is the ultimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. And when we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another. Do you have fellowship? Do you have something in common with God through Jesus Christ? And as a result, do you have fellowship with the church? If you don't want to feel like you're being pushed into something, don't come to church for the next little bit. Because it's, I hope it's going to make not just you, but me. I had to preach the thing today. Gosh. This stuff, this stuff, it... It prods us. Do you want to grow? Are you just doing this? Or do, you want, or, or do you want to see change? Do you want to live on fire for Jesus? Do you want to experience him? Then let's go through this book together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I, uh, I just I hope there's people in the room right now that are just longing for experience with you. I think there's people that, there's, there's got to be just across the board, all different types of people that are just here just kind of wondering, am I, am I really in? Am I a part of this? Lord, that desire to be in shows something really cool, and that is that they desire to be a part of you. So, Lord, I, I, pr I pray that you would affirm those people. But, Lord, uh, all of us, to some degree or another, are just living like nothing matters and just doing whatever we want. Lord, would you heal us of that? Would you make us want to want to walk with you? And Lord, for those of us that have our pride puffed up and think that just my moral standing is what I need, Lord, show us our faults. Show us how our pride has gotten in the way. Show us how we are people who deeply need you. So Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Lord, for, especially for those that have never put their hope and faith in you, Lord, I pray that they would know today that it is as simple as confessing to you that they need you because of their, their sin and acknowledging you as Savior on the cross and saying, I want to live for you. So, Lord, I pray that today they'd tell somebody about that decision, that they'd begin to walk in new life, The Lord, they'd follow along in this book of 1 John, which is so great for people who have just come to faith. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd do something amazing in your church here. 
And I pray that we'd participate with you, that we'd not resist your spirits. In your name we pray. Amen. This